go. You guys ready? So I've, um, it's been kind of floating around, but a couple weeks ago, some of you know, the, this ministry sponsored uh, about 12 uh, refugee, immigrant, and low-income kids from uh, uptown or closer to uptown Charlotte to go compete at their first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament. And we took the team, and uh, the kids did great. They went up against kids from other schools that train three, four, five days a week. Our kids train once a week, and they held their own. They didn't, some of them didn't have the nice, fancy attire to compete in, uh, but they got out there in their T-shirts and their little pants, and they <laughs> went for it. So I was really proud of them. There's an album. A friend came and volunteered uh, as a photographer that day and took pictures of all of them all of them with their medals and competing. And so that album's kind of floating around. If you want to look at it and see, that's, that's a vital part of this ministry. So this is the teaching aspect in the spiritual, and then that's the teaching aspect in the physical and the community building. Uh, so even though you guys don't come do jujitsu with us on Tuesday nights, you come here and this is all part of the same ministry. And so that's what your support of the ministry helps enable, things like that. McLean would be too deadly. I don't want him to come. He would, there's, there's a certain level you reach where you just have to stay off the mats after that but for the good of your opponents. So, um, but uh, along those lines of, of supporting the ministry, we're, we're be, we'll be doing a number of things to help raise funds because now we're full nonprofit. No more DVD sales or curriculum sales. That's all being uploaded online. So if you go to YouTube, and I encourage you all do this. Go to YouTube and search Disciple Dojo and, and then click subscribe. The more subscribers our channel gets, the higher in status the ministry grows. And eventually we have enough people, we can actually start seeing some revenue from the videos that we post each week. But that only happens when you reach a certain threshold. So right now we're not even near that threshold. So if it sounds like I'm pushing that a lot, I am, uh, because it's also where we post these videos each week. And so if you miss a week, you can catch up. Or if you have friends that can't be here, I have people all the time when I post on Instagram and Facebook, like, oh, I wish I could be in Charlotte for the Bible study. And I tell them, well, you, you won't get the food, but click on the YouTube channel or the podcast, subscribe, and you can listen each week on your own lunch break or while you're doing your hot yoga or whatever it is you're, uh, McLean, while you're doing your hot yoga classes, you can listen. So, um, uh, so anyway, it's one of the things we're going to be doing. We're doing a special fundraiser this month where for every $5 you donate to the ministry, and all donations are tax deductible. We're 501c3 nonprofit. Anything you give, you get a tax rebate for. Um, for every $5 you give, your name will be uh, recorded. And at the end, what we're going to do is do a drawing, and get, the winner will get this, um, the newest study Bible from Zondervan, the NIV Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible. It's a really, Christianity Today named it one of their top study Bible resources, but it's full color, it's full of background. A lot of this, if you like this Bible study that we do, this is one of the study Bibles that I use to help me prepare each week. And so this is a, a new version, hardcover, hardcover. It, it's a great resource. Um, and like I said, you just donate. For every $5, you, you want to up your chances, donate 50 bucks. You'll get your name entered 10 times. Our finance director will keep track of all the donations, and, and you have to go, and you just have to put a little note in the donation box that says, Fall Fundraiser, and that's it. That's all you have to do. So you're helping this study continue. You're helping those kids continue, uh, and you have a chance of possibly winning a really cool, useful study Bible. So um, just some house cleaning, or housekeeping tips before we get started. Let's get back into numbers. We were in chapter 24, 
and we ran out of time last week when we were looking at Billam's final speech to King Balak. So if you weren't here for that, uh, hop on the video and look up our YouTube channel and, and watch last week's video so you get the full breakdown. But basically, after Billam gave his final of the three oracles, then Balak said, I, just get out of here. You're not going to get paid. You've cursed instead of blessed. And uh, I'm, you've, God has taken your reward away from you by not cursing these people that I hired you to curse. So Billam says, okay, fine, but let me just give you one parting bit of insight of what's going to happen. And in this last oracle, he, he, he's, the Spirit of God comes upon him. And he basically says, uh, we'll read it again. Um, verse 14, now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. Then he uttered this oracle. The oracle of Bilaam son of Baor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge of the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. So he is, he is saying this is from the Lord. I'm seeing it. I'm hearing it. And I'm falling before God because I can't do anything else. And, and that's what he did. Remember when, the Balaam, when he came, Balaam came on his donkey and his eyes were not opened and the donkey's eyes were opened and, and then the angel finally, his eyes were opened and what did he do? He fell face down and he, he realized like, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of God. It's, it's almost you get the sense that Balaam felt like you know, Yahweh was just one of the many spiritual deities that he spoke with or communed with. And now at this point, you're seeing that he's realizing, at least right now, he's it. This Yahweh guy is legit and he's serious and Balak, you are in trouble because you have three times attempted to curse the seed, the covenant seed of Abraham, the covenant people of God with Yahweh dwelling in their midst. You've chosen to curse them three times when all you had to do was let them pass through. If Balak had just let them pass through, they would have gone on into Canaan. Nothing would have happened. But all of this came about because Balak summoned his forces and, and threatened to come against violently the people of God. And so he got this oracle. It says, verse 17, Bilaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So now he's looking and he's, taying, he's saying, this is, a, this is a look into the future. This is going to happen. These people have been blessed by God. Why? Well, think back to Genesis 12. We always go back to Genesis 12 in this study. Go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your offspring numerous as the stars in the sky. I will, those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. And then that last clause, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the plan of God was to unfold through Israel and Israel's destiny was to be the means through which all the nations of the earth came to knowledge of God. How would that happen? Well, it gets clearer and clearer as the, uh, the story goes along. It's like taking a camera and you're shooting and it's blurry. What do you do? You twist the lens and it starts to come into focus. It comes into focus and then eventually it gets crisp and sharp. Well, that's what biblical prophecy does as it moves along in the Old Testament. The prophecies start to get sharper and sharper and sharper until you get to Matthew chapter 1 and then it's right there, crystal clear on Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So that's how these prophecies unfold. You, you have to take all the prophecies together, not as individual unrelated promises, and you see the image that's being focused 
that will come to its full focus on Jesus in the New Testament. So at this point now, we know that the seed of the woman, a human, is going to crush the head of the serpent. So we know that from Genesis 3. We know that through the seed of Abraham is how that's going to come about. It's going to come through one of Abraham's descendants, not from any other peoples on the earth. Then we know that it's going to come through the the people of Israel in particular, not all of Abraham's descendants, but the Israelites who were just one of his descendants. And then it's going to come from within Israel. Now it's even focusing more through... um, uh, It's going to come from, as we'll see later, at least it's already been mentioned briefly in Genesis at the end, but through the tribe of Judah, that promise is going to reach its fulfillment. And here now we're seeing that it's going to happen in the form of a king. Like an earthly king is going to come through that. So, so the, the promises are all getting tied together. And then later it'll be a king after Saul, it'll say, and it's going to be through the line of David. So it gets narrowed down even further. And then by the time the New Testament ar- arrives, that's when all of the expectation is for this promised heir to all of this. And so he will be the culmination of all the seed promises in the Old Testament. And that's why Paul will say to the Galatians, he is the seed, singular, of Abraham. It's Jesus. He is the one. And so in him, all the other seeds, small s, of Abraham come together and form, continue the, the tradition of the people of God. So hugely important for the overall story of the Bible. But right now we're just getting that glimpse. Bilaam, this pagan prophet, is giving a, a prophecy of the king of Israel who's going to arise. And he says uh, he will crush the foreheads of Moab, and that's just a way of saying like completely destroy, like crush the head is utterly defeat is the way you could say that. Um, the skulls of the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. Edom and Seir were the, the areas where Israel has had to travel through and has fought battles so far. This is where they're camped out right now in this general area. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the fortress or of the city or of the garrison. Um, Then Balaam saw Amalek. So now that's what's going to happen with Israel. He's looking at Israel. Now he looks at Amalek, this king who had hired, uh, or or the king who had harassed the people, the Amalekites, who had harassed Israel and attacked them first. The Amalekites were the first people, remember in Exodus when Israel came out of Egypt, the Amalekites would chase them down and pick off the wounded or the ones at the tail end. So they were the first ones to attack God's people. And that's what he's going to say next. Then Balaam saw Amalek, meaning the people of the Amalekites, and uttered his oracle. Amalek was the first among the nations, but he will come to ruin at last. So there's a little wordplay. First among the nations doesn't mean it was the first people. It means the first ones to attack Israel. The first ones to come against the people of God after the Exodus. But he will come to ruin at last. It's a little wordplay. You were first, you'll get yours in the end. Then he saw the Kenites, and he uttered this oracle. So the Kenites now, this is the same word as Cain in the Old Testament, and there's some debate. Is this talking about the Kenites, like a tribe in the area? Is it talking about uh, descendants of Cain in some general sense? Is it, we don't exactly know. This is old material. This is some of the oldest material in the Torah. And so we don't know exactly who these Kenites are, although we do know that they were related to Israel through marriage. So all of these people that are being prophesied against are kind of like Israel's neighbors that are hostile, at least right now or in the future, to Israel. He says, your dwelling place is secure. Your nest is set in a rock. Yet you Kenites will be destroyed when Asher takes you captive. 
There's a word play in here too. Your, your dwelling place is secure. Now they lived in a mountainous area. The, the area of Edom and Seir and this, this area, it's today modern Jordan. It's on the other side of the Jordan River from Israel. It's very mountainous. There, there, there are fortified cliffs and protected dwellings and all this. And it says your, nests, your nest is set in the rock. Well, that's a word play. Because the word nest is the word Cain. And the people he's talking about are the Cainite. So you, it'd be like if he said, you nestites, your nest is secure, but the nestites are going to fall. It's, it, I mean, there's not, the wordplay don't work in English very well, but it, that's the general sense of it. Is you think you're secure in your locale, in your setting, but uh, you're not. You'll be destroyed when Asher takes you captive. Scholars are divided on this one. Is this Asher? Is this Assyria? And is it predicting the later Assyrian conquering of that region? Or is this the Asherites, this localized tribe or, or a group that's going to come in and make war? Again, we don't know. It doesn't really matter for the point of this passage because what Bilaam is doing is he's looking at these nations, who have these, say nations, these city-states, these people groups who have attacked Israel or come against Israel or have refused to aid Israel, and he's pointing out the end of each one. Your end will come. Your end will come. And then he goes on, then he uttered this oracle, ah, who can live when God does this? Ships will come from the shores of Katim. They will subdue Asher and Eber, but they too will come to ruin. Now this again, we don't exactly know who these people are, but we do know a few things. Katim is a general term for the islands off the Mediterranean. Places like Cyprus and where the Philistines originally came from. Katim just had that sense of like the faraway islands. Think of it in English when we say from here to Timbuktu, right? We just mean somewhere far away. Well, Timbuktu is a real place. It's actually a real city. But when we use that term, we don't mean whoever is living in... We just, it's a general way of saying the far-off people. And that's what the Katim are in the minds of Israelites. So these far-off people are going to come and the, the ships will come and they'll bring them and they'll subdue the previous people, Asher, who subdued the previous people. So in other words, these empires are going to come and they're going to go. These peoples are going to rise and they're going to fall. But Asher and Eber are going to be overthrown by these people from Katim. Again, we don't know if this is later referring to the Greek sweeping through the nation and, and just turning everything into Alexander's kingdom or, or something like that. Um, we don't know the specifics with any certainty. I mean, there's guesses and there's conjectures. Check the commentary for those. But <clears throat> we know that, that this is... All of these, all of these points are focusing on the fate of the people who came against, in force, God's people Israel. The covenant people. And not because they were the covenant people in a general sense, like, well, my dad's Israelite, so I'm good, I'm protected. Well, that's not the case, because we've already seen a whole generation of them are going to die in the desert. It's these people came against the people of God in covenant with God. And that's the key distinction. See, this, this is, these passages and passages like this really come into play when you start looking at the modern world especially. Because there are theologies, entire theologies built around these passages and then superimposed onto today's political landscape. And that's not always wise because it doesn't always fit. So for instance, I'll be next year taking a group back to Israel and to the West Bank, hopefully. And we'll be there with 
Palestinian Christians and Arab Christians who've been there, you know, going back to the time of Pentecost. They can trace their roots in that land back to Pentecost. So they're as native to the land as anybody. But yet, because of the political conflict going on there, there's, there's a whole mountain of theological outlooks that are brought into that conflict by people on all sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so you'll have these Christians. I have a friend who... He's a PhD in uh, Christian, got his PhD in England, um, teaches at the seminary there, and just as solid a believer as you'll ever find. And he said for the longest time, he couldn't read the Old Testament because it kept saying, God bless Israel, God bless Israel, God bless Israel. But then when he'd go out his house and try to go to work, he'd have to pass through military checkpoints that are manned by soldiers with flags that say Israel on it. And he would just make that one-to-one correspondence and would read the Bible and it says they'll always be blessed, don't ever oppose them. But those were, in his day-to-day life, those were the people who he felt are oppressing or at least preventing him as a Christian from living in the land. So that had a huge impact on how he would read passages like this and Christians all over the world. On the flip side, other Christians who have really caught on and latched onto these promises and superimposed them onto Israel the same way have said, no, that's why we support that nation state. It doesn't matter that they're a secular democracy. It doesn't matter that the vast majority don't keep any form of uh, biblical obedience, that it's the, you know, the most LGBT celebrative uh, country in that region, or that it's rebels in its secular and even some communist origins in terms of the initial Zionists who are coming into Israel and kind of rebuilding it as this utopia. All of these things come into play, but they, they kind of just say, well, that's going to take care of itself, but the main thing is we've got to bless this country, we've got to bless this country. So they want arms, we'll send them arms. They want weapons, we'll send them weapons. They want money, we'll send them money. Just bless, 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 because we want to be blessed. So it becomes this, this for that give and take on a geopolitical scale. And the problem is that all of those theologies overlook the glaring point of Torah, which is that the promises to God to the seed of Abraham only apply to those who are in covenant with the God of Abraham. And after the appearance of Messiah from Israel to Israel, all his first followers were Israel, then Gentiles were welcomed in. From that day on, there's been a major shift in how that covenant is realized on the earth. And so people, if you're not careful, you can read these Torah passages and superimpose them, skipping over the cross and superimposing them onto a modern political area or even to the Jewish people in general, uh, not just the ones living in Israel. And what that does is it detaches this part of the story from the climax of the story, which is the Messiah of Israel coming in the flesh, that star out of Jacob, the one who has the scepter, the one who is the king of Israel. And that is the sharp divide between Christians and our Jewish friends and Jewish family. And it's a sharp divide. Now, I didn't say it's a harsh divide. It doesn't need to be. We, We should be able to love and serve and share and welcome and, and uphold and fight for the rights and the safety of our Jewish friends and family. We should oppose anti-Semitism as loudly as anyone ever in the history of the world because anti-Semitism is anti-Christ. And we should be very clear about that so that everyone, no matter where they come from, but particularly if they're Jewish, should see Christians as 
allies who disagree with them. That's, that's what we can honestly say is you are people created in God's image and, and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, not the modern state of Israel, the Jewish people, which is far broader than the modern state of Israel, you are in some way still valued and God has plans and purposes and we want to see that come true, but we genuinely and honestly believe that that won't ever happen apart from your Messiah, who we know as Jesus, Yeshua. And that's okay to say. I mean, that's, that's where honest Christians and honest Jews can have honest disagreement. And it doesn't have to turn into a fight. It doesn't have to turn into this, you know, try to convert you and, and, and win and put a notch on my belt. Ah, converted a Jew. Woohoo! You know, there's, there's been that in the history of the faith, and it's awful. There's so much anti-Semitism in the history of the church. It's absolutely dreadful. So we don't have to go down that route. But we also don't have to go the route of the forms of theology that say, well, God's deal with Israel is still cool because they're Jews and they're His chosen people. We just focus on Gentiles. And that's the church. And Israel's Israel and the twain shall never meet. Well, that's as heretical as you can get from a New Testament perspective because they were all, all the authors of the New Testament, with one exception possibly, were circumcised first century Jews. Talking about their Messiah to their people. It does not say a star will come out of Egypt. A star will come out of Babylon. A star will come out of Jacob. The Messiah of Israel that we worship is the Messiah of Israel. The Jewish Messiah. And so there's this, it's, it's tricky to navigate the relationship. But family relationships are always tricky. Right? The people you fight with the most are sometimes you know, cousins or siblings or whatever. And, and it's okay. So... And that holds true in, in a more general sense for anybody of any faith. You know, when I go to India with my Indian friends, I, I, we talk about this in the context of a Hindu country and, and where those concepts of covenant and all of that aren't the driving factors. And it's the, the behavior is still the same on the part of Christians. How should we relate to our non-Christian believer or non-Christian friends, whether Hindu in India, whether Jewish in Crown Heights, New York, or whether, you know, wherever? How should we... Well... You should relate the way Jesus related to people. You should relate the way you want people to relate to you. If somebody disagrees with you, you don't want them to lie and say, oh, I believe you, I agree with you. Yeah, you're awesome. You don't want that because it's being fake. But you also don't want them to say, I don't agree with you and I don't welcome you. Because that's breaking the golden rule too. So we have to hold that balance as followers of Jesus, as people who we believe based on our New Testament Scriptures are the continuation of these promises, not its replacement. Church never replaced Israel. The church is the outgrowth of Israel into the world. We stand in that tradition, so we should embrace people regardless of where they're coming from and show them through our actions, through our words, and through our deeds, the Messiah who Bill and promised these thousands of years ago. Show them that Messiah. Show them in our lives with how we treat people, with how we serve people, regardless of whether they ever come to faith or not. If you live your entire life and you serve and love someone and they die a staunch atheist, that does not matter whatsoever in terms of your faithfulness. Because that's between them and the Lord ultimately. As long as you faithfully loved and served them until the day they died, you've done your part being Jesus, reflecting it to them. And that's the challenge that we have, is to, to, to love and to serve and to take this star of Jacob to the world. 
in all of our ways, in everything we do, whether it's at our office cubicle or whether it's in line at the checkout counter behind the person who's so slow and so annoying or the person at the red light who won't turn when there's an opening and you're running late and you just want to let that finger fly. Like, those are the times when you're tipping at a restaurant. Ah, that's the one that really steps on Christian's toes because we are horrible tippers in the Christian world. There's a reason why the food service industry hates to serve on Sunday morning lunch. And it's a, it is a blight on the name of the gospel in this country. Those are the times when our spirituality, when our commitment to this covenant God are put on display. Those are the times that really matter. When we're at a worship conference, when we're at church on Sunday, when we're here, that doesn't matter. It's easy to seem spiritual here. It's when you face somebody who brings everything out of you that makes you want to curse and you bless instead. That's when the rubber meets the road. So, Bilaam finishes this prophecy and it says, verse 25, then Bilaam got up and returned home and Balak went on his own way. So we think from reading this, oh, well, Bilaam's a good guy. He's the hero. If it had ended here, the answer would be yes. And he would have gone down like Melchizedek as a righteous Gentile who was seen as one of those glimpses of God working in the wider world. However, we're going to find out his faith in Numbers 31. Bilaam, was going to, Bilaam leaves to go on his way to return home, but along the way somewhere, he's going to make a stop. And he's going to talk to some uh, of the peoples that he's just been trying to help in order to earn his paycheck for the past few chapters. And he's going to go down, because of what's going to happen in and around chapters uh, like Numbers 31, he's going to actually, instead of going down as Melchizedek, he's going to go down as a Jezebel or, or uh, you know, one of the pagan, like the, the, his name is going to become synonymous with dangerous, deadly idolatry based on what happens in these next few chapters. So that's key to remember. Because we're going to get in chapter 25 next week, this is all going on in this place called Shittim, in this area in kind of west of the Jordan River, and, or east of the Jordan River. And all of this is going on while Israel's kind of encamped there waiting to move into the Promised Land. We're going to get back to Israel now and see what they've been doing, this generation of Israel, while these amazing prophecies have been spoken by a pagan prophet without their knowledge whatsoever. We'll see what happens and how they've responded. And just like Moses being up on the mountain receiving this divine, amazing revelation while Israel was down below worshiping the golden, around the golden calf and, and carousing and basically just having a pagan orgy, we're going to see the vestiges of that generation that hasn't completely died off yet still active in the life of Israel. And it's going to hit the fan <laughs> as it has so far. But this will be kind of the culmination of that rebellion and the final ending of that generation as they do die in the desert, just like God had promised. So if next week, if you know anybody that's a fan of things like Game of Thrones or any Lord of the Rings or any of these like epic, violent, you know, just shocking things that go on, particularly Game of Thrones, that's what next week's chapter and the chapter's that follow are going to bring to mind because it's going to get pretty lurid uh, and pretty intense as we go through these next few chapters. So have a great week, everybody. Uh, remember, donate anything all this month. It ends October 1st. We'll do the drawing for who wins the uh, study Bible and there'll be some drawings for other prizes as well. So go donate, support the ministry, catch the album that's floating around if you want to see some of what else we do. 
and grab some food because there's plenty left. Have a great week, everybody.